Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Calling the Man's Answers show live every week. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to me on your favorite streaming platform to stay up to date with the show. This is episode 82 with Josiah Hornman, a.k.a. Joe Spins the Globe. Josiah is a PA or physician assistant who worked at the South Pole for eight months during the polar winter. He currently posts media on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok being his biggest platform. Currently, he has over 1 million followers on TikTok and continues to grow his media. He can be found on all platforms at Joe Spins the Globe. My name is Josiah. I'm a physician assistant. Um, I'm probably here because I got a little bit TikTok famous uh, being a, the PA at the South Pole Station over this past year at the winter. Um, yeah, that's my intro. If you've uh, seen my TikToks, then you know who I am. Yeah, let's let's just dive into that. So, you know, I, I think it's fascinating because not only do most people know nothing about Antarctica, like the only thing yeah. you know is about geography, right? But then sure. you come along and you you explode on TikTok and and it, the cool thing about it is I actually talked to someone about this earlier, but he's a virologist and you could see why uh-huh. he exploded because of the whole pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah. The cool thing about it is you're seeing not just like people on TikTok and Instagram, not just kids and and even adults interested in um you know being an influencer or or interested in like cool cars and money, but they're also interested in ideas and and fascinating yeah. scientific things. So yeah, like let's talk about a little bit what you were doing down at the South Pole, specifically what your job title was. Uh, what were you sure. doing down there? So my job, basically, uh, I'm part of the medical support. Um, I am there as one of two medical staff on station. Uh, the other one is, is the doctor. So there's the doctor and then me, the physician assistant. Um, they also do nurse practitioners in that role, but that's it. No nurses, no other uh, medical staff. We basically run whatever we need to run for medical support. Um, now what that looks like on a daily basis is we are, uh, basically seeing anybody who comes into the clinic, obviously. And we do have a set clinic, uh, area in the, um, in the station. It's actually pretty roomy. They're pretty generous with uh, the medical, uh, area. Um, as you can imagine, like space is kind of a premium because you don't want to have to build a bigger building down there than you have to. But, um, we, we have a pretty generous area, um, besides that, we also run the pharmacy. We uh, maintain the inventory of everything medical. That includes medications, equipment. Uh, a lot of stuff runs on batteries. We've also got to maintain like ventilators and things like that. Um, anything that you could imagine you'd want at the South Pole, we have to do everything for it. We have to quality control it. We have to manage the inventory. We have to see if it's gone bad and make sure to order a new one next next time we get shipments. Um we are also uh, we also take on other duties around the station that aren't medical specific. Uh, everybody on station usually has you know at least one job, usually two. Um, part of our medical uh, duties this year was taking care of some of the trash. Uh, so we would take the trash out, sort it, um, and that's kind of an involved process that you can also see on my TikTok. It's not just you throw the bag out the door; it's you got to take it downstairs through the cold and sort it all in the underground area. Um, there's a lot of sitting around and waiting for something bad to happen. And luckily nothing real bad ever happened this year, uh, which we're happy about um, because something bad happening down there medically is, is um, kind of a, kind of a, kind of an issue because you're so far away from uh, any hospitals, any legit hospital, the, mm-hmm. the, re- the closest legitimate hospital to the South pole station is probably about 3000 miles away. 
So uh, you're kind of on your own. Uh, but a lot of it is what we refer to as kind of like lighthouse keeping, where you're just there trying to maintain uh, everybody's health the best way possible. And so they can do their jobs, um, which the main point of the station down there is for uh, science. And so there's a, a few scientists down there and the rest of us are support personnel just to make sure they can do their job. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very important job, especially down there. A couple of things I was thinking about when you were speaking about your role, one being, I saw on your TikTok, the airplane, and there was things on the bottom of the wheels. Specifically, how did you get there? Like, what, yeah. what did the travel look like? What did the landing specifically look like and the takeoff from the base you were stationed at? Sure. So if you want a whole overview of how I got to the South Pole, I did a little video even before I left on the entire trip, um, getting from you know my house here in Florida to the actual South Pole station. And you've got to go, um, you got to leave from LA, go through New Zealand, and then you get to the coast of Antarctica and McMurdo station. And then uh, you actually finally get to the South Pole. The aircraft you're taking are uh, all turbojets, that's our turbo props, sorry. Uh, and uh, mostly military planes. So to get to McMurdo Station on the coast, you generally take either a Hercules C-130 or a C-17. Uh, that's actually uh, a jet uh, jet plane. Both of those are military planes uh, crewed by the Air National Guard. Um, generally, they use skis. Uh, during the winter, when the snow is hard enough, they can use wheels at McMurdo Station. However, everything going to South Pole from McMurdo Station, which is a distance of about 800 miles, uh, it uses skis. So the South Pole runway never is prepped for wheels. So everything is skis. Um, and to get to the South Pole Station, you're using either Hercules C-130 um, that's the biggest plane that ever lands there. More commonly, there are smaller airplanes. Uh, sorry if you can hear that airplane in the air right now. Hopefully not uh, flying right over my house. Very slightly, um, not really. Okay, good. Um, there are uh, Basler's, uh, uh, Basler BT-60, I think. And this, you have to be a kind of an airplane nut to know what I'm talking about, I guess, because I didn't even know these before I went down there. Uh, a Basler is basically a, a DC-3, like back that they used during like World War II, um, retrofitted to have uh, better engines, better capacity, and to be able to move people. But basically everything that lands at the South Pole is on skis. That's the probably the main point I'm trying to make here. Um, okay. Because there's just no solid ground uh, for a runway and it's, it takes special grooming to be able to land with wheels. And we don't have that at the South pole. Yeah. Just, I mean, obviously a basic question about landing on skis. Sure. How do you slow down? Like, because <laughs> you know, like you carve like how a normal snowboarder would, or like, how does, how does, does it have to like wiggle the wheels specifically? No, no. That's a good question. I'm not a pilot. Um, but I know there is a little bit of drag just from hitting the ground with skis. Uh, but then also you're, uh, you're turning off the engines and I think reversing the jets too. And so there, that's how you break. I believe I'm not a pilot, but um, I believe that's how they slow down. Once they, once they touch down, we do have a super long runway too, for what it's worth. I think it's about three or four miles long or something crazy like that. Um, maybe it's, two or three. Anyway, it's a really long run runway. So if you, I mean, usually they're slowed down 
uh, way before they get near the station. Um, however, we do have protocols in place um, because the the ski way actually um, intersects one of the paths to go out to one of the doesn't intersect. It stops before one of the paths to go out to one of the telescopes. And so obviously people are going in and out there. So they have warning lights on the sides of the path being like, Hey, don't cross. If there's a landing, um, I never saw those signals because we were there in the winter time when there are no flights going in and out. Uh, but it, it is a safety precaution just in case for some reason they can't slow down or something, or they overshoot the runway. They don't want people in that walking path when there's, um, when there's planes going. No. Yeah. And I'm sure like, obviously, like you said, that makes sense that they would do something like reverse the jets. Um, and then I another, think that's yeah. what happens. I'm not a pilot. Like I said, yeah. yeah. Um, but another thing I was thinking about earlier when you were speaking about your job and your duties down there would be specifically, um, do you see, or the injuries you type of see or, 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 um, even illness to some sense, what, is it all cold weather related or mostly cold weather related frostbite, things like that? So a lot of it can be, we did have a couple cases of frostbite. Um, usually people bundle up really, really well because we're obviously very aware of how cold it is outside. So we take pretty good precautions. Um, we did have a few cases of frostbite. I don't know if it's most of the cases we have. I think most of the cases we have are just like everyday things that people have just by being alive. You know, you get some uh, allergies one day, which is funny because there's nothing really down there to be allergic to except in the greenhouse. I never had a problem except when they were like cutting stuff up or harvesting stuff or, or ripping plants out of the greenhouse. For some reason, I think it got into the air vents and just made my nose run like crazy. But anyway, um, there are some frostbite. We never had like a legit hypothermia case. Uh, you know, if people come in, they're cold, they just warm up. It's fine. Um, but it mostly it's just, it's regular, just people problems. Um, we had somebody who broke their toe, somebody who chipped a tooth, like nothing super serious. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's about, I think that about answers that. No, it does. Yeah. And you know, it's fascinating because I can't even imagine or can't even fathom living somewhere for an extended period of time with no natural light, no sunlight, you know, and you did yeah. it for that I think six months on your page, you know, yep. go into depth about what that's like day to day, never seeing natural light. Um, do you have to replenish your vitamin D a lot? Do you have to get a lot like take capsules? Cause even me, I live in the, well, I live, I'm from Vegas. So a lot of sunlight. And then I, mm -hmm. I go to college up in, in uh, Pacific Northwest in Portland. And even there I feel replenished or, or, or depleted in my vitamin D and I have to take capsules. What do you guys do there? What is it like day to day with no sunlight? Yeah. So we definitely encourage people to take vitamin D. We say it's basically, uh, it, it, it's, I mean, we're not force feeding people pills, but we're like, you got to do this. Um, and we provide it for people from the pharmacy. If you know, whoever didn't bring any on their own, I brought a bunch, um, and it's definitely a requirement because you're just not getting your natural vitamin D from the sunlight because there's no sunlight. So you've got you've to do it on your own. Um, we also have lots of other vitamins people take um, and we provide from the pharmacy if they want, like B12 and zinc, uh, vitamin C. Uh, if people want to take those, they can. Uh, as far as not seeing the sun for that long, it is really strange uh, because... <laughs> 
any time of your you know of, of the day or night, you can just walk outside and see uh, and see darkness and see the stars in the sky. Um, and it's it's kind of strange. I mean, most of my day, I'm I'm inside the station with the lights and everything, um, and all the windows are boarded up, so you can't really see outside. So it's almost like you know you're like you're in a submarine or something where you you don't even know what time of day it is, even if there was light outside. Um, so you're a bit, um, you're a bit shielded from the fact of knowing it's nighttime all the time, but yeah, you walk outside and it's, it's nighttime all the time. Um, and I'm being from Florida, I'm the same as you. Like I'm used to seeing the sun all the time. I'm used to going to the beach, you know, feeling the warmth of the sun. And I think I, I did fine with it for, for a good while. You know, the sun goes down in March, late March, um, doesn't come up again until September. And I did pretty good until, uh, I would say late July, late July. It just started to drag on me. Like, um, I, uh, I just started getting really fatigued. I started getting, uh, like very low energy, like at my sleep requirements, I felt like I needed to sleep a couple more hours a night. Um, it felt like I just wanted to hibernate, honestly. Um, and some, some people will probably recognize, you know, some symptoms of cis, uh, seasonal affective disorder out of those, you know, sad SAD, which I definitely was starting to experience. Um, but that was after, you know, uh, three, four months of the sun having gone down. So I feel like it did pretty well. Um, some people definitely have it worse. Some people go the whole winter and are totally fine. Um, it just depends on the person. Um, the other thing we have too, if you want to, uh, kind of lessen the effects of that is we have a greenhouse with grow lights. So you can go in there and kind of experience like real, like full spectrum light. Um, well, actually it's probably more skewed towards what the plants want. So it's not even full spectrum anymore, but, um, yeah, they have pretty bright grow lights and it's very humid in there too, since it's where the, where the plants are growing. So, um, I didn't take advantage of that as much as I should have, but that's another way you can kind of cope with the darkness, but it's, it's, it's very weird. It's very weird. It's, you know, three months straight, total pitch black. Um, and then six weeks on either side of that, uh, you have like the sun slowly going down or the sun slowly coming up from the horizon. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's very weird, but it's, it's pretty cool too, because you go out just about any time and you can always see the Aurora. Um, what we're used to calling the Northern lights, but they're the Southern lights down there. So, uh, it kind of makes it worth it for me. What, I guess I should start with if it did actually, did it affect, I'm sure it didn't after a long period of time, but did it affect your concept of day and night, your, your concept of how long you should be awake? Because um, you would even assume that like even people who work graveyard shifts would start to become disassociated with wakeness almost. Um, did you mm-hmm. experience that when you first got there or when you started experiencing the, the this SAD? Did you ever feel that? Um, I did. Yeah. When I started like towards the end of July, I did start feeling, uh, I started feeling like I didn't want to follow a daily schedule anymore. Like I wanted to sleep when I wanted to sleep and, uh, and, and be awake when I wanted to be awake. I almost started getting on this, uh, two, two sleep a day cycle of like two, two times a day, like, and I say day, meaning like a 24 hour period, two times where I'd sleep for six hours at a time and then be up for five hours. And then it was like this weird schedule that my body wanted to do. Um, and you're right. I kind of became disassociated from my normal schedule. Um, the other thing that doesn't help with that is that our internet, um, is just by satellite, uh, is 
we don't get satellite internet uh, 24 hours a day. It's only about five hours a day, the good internet. Uh, and that, that slowly slides backwards in the day throughout the year. So about that time of the year, late July, it's, and uh, like August, it's starting to be pretty early in the morning. It's like from like 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. Um, and so you want to stay up to get the internet, and but you're also supposed to be in the clinic for like official clinic hours, uh, you know, in the morning to afternoon, like normal nine to five-ish hours. So that also messes with you because you're like trying to stay up for internet and then you're getting a few hours sleep, going to work. And then, yeah, it's just, a, it's a jumble of, uh, it's a jumble of sleep and wake and a lot of it's a blur to me now um yeah but yeah it, it can be really tough yeah i was gonna ask you that you kind of answered it if you guys still stayed on a traditional nine to five schedule or if you guys had some weird um associated with satellite and everything like that your hours changed because the concept of a day is only because especially for you having family members and loved ones <clears throat> in, in florida you would assume that your day could if it's pitch black all day your day could be considered the same time it was in florida because you're not yeah. gonna have sunlight anyway so i was wondering if yeah. you guys still followed a traditional schedule but you kind of answered that yeah so some people do i do um being medical support we changed it slightly um be, and so my day actually started at 11 and would, i would end at seven um around that time when I was staying up later and b besides the fact that I wanted to do it because it made it easier for getting internet. Um, it's also because certain people's jobs revolve around having internet. Like a lot of the scientists need to have internet to do their jobs or to make progress on something in their job. So they'll change their schedule throughout the year to follow the internet schedule. Um, and so uh, one second. I'm actually at my parents' place. Let me get them to quiet down just a second. Uh, so yeah, certain people's jobs, mostly the scientists follow the internet schedule, uh, to be able to make progress on their work or whatever they're doing, or to send data back to the mainland, um, or to the U S. So, um, you have this whole kind of like cohort of people that are staying up following the internet schedule. So since that was the case, I was like, well, it makes sense if there's a bunch of people awake at a certain time that I should also be awake since I'm medical support. It'd be better than both of us medical people staying awake and then sleeping at the same time. Why doesn't one of us kind of like stay awake, uh, you know, just in case there's an emergency that way we're already awake and we can help respond to it. Um, so yeah, I changed my schedule a little bit, but there are definitely people that rotate all through the year around the internet. Um, there was one person who actually tried a, um, a 28 hour day cycle where, uh, I think you're up for 16 and then sleep for 12 or something like that. And he did that for a couple of weeks. So a lot of people experiment with different things. Um, a lot of people do like a sleep three times a day. Um, yeah, everybody's on a kind of a funky schedule. Some people just sleep whenever they want. Uh, some scientists that have a very flexible schedule, they just, whenever they're tired, tired, they just go to sleep and then stay up for whatever they feel like. So, um, you said there was yeah, about, you have all kinds. Yeah. You said there was about 36, uh, people down there, right? 39 of us total. Yeah. 39. And that's gotta be, it's gotta be weird to come back. Like, I mean, you, you sp sort of said this when you were talking about it. I don't know if we were inside of the podcast yet if we were just talking before but you're talking about how it was a little shock to get back to yeah. um, 
civilization. It's got to be, you got to become accustomed to only seeing those 38 other faces, right? What was it like yeah. to be re come back to civilization, modern civilization, where there's millions of people, especially somewhere like Florida? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it, you don't really realize it until you leave, but yeah, you're, you're on the station. I'm going to wait till this helicopter goes over. I don't know why we're having so much air traffic today. <laughs> You're good, man. Everything's, everything's flying right over my house. Um, <clears throat> anyways, so, uh, yeah, you don't really realize it till you leave, but um, you are in the same place with 39 and 38 other people, whatever, and you're just so used to seeing all the same people all the time, all the same time, sorry, all the same people all the time. Every meal you go to, you know everybody there. You know everybody's faces. Nobody's an unknown, you know? And then it was really weird actually just going from South Pole Station to McMurdo Station where there was like 500 people, I think. Uh, and we went to the cafeteria there. I was there with another guy coming off from the station. And we both went to the cafeteria. And I just found myself like just like looking around the cafeteria, like subconsciously, like my, like my eyes were just like darting around the room. And I think I was trying to find familiar faces because I'd seen nothing but familiar faces for like nine months. And then it was like this almost like anxious thing where I was just like eyes darting around the room looking for people that I recognized and I didn't recognize anybody. Um, and your brain thinks that's weird after recognizing every single face you've seen for the last nine months. So that was, that was definitely a thing. Um, getting back to Florida and then three days after I, well, before I even got back to Florida, I went through LAX, um, and that was that was probably the most people I've seen together at one time. Um, let's see. You, can you still see me? Yeah. Okay. It might just had a notification about my camera. It's weird. Um, yeah, I went through LAX, and that was like so many people all in one place. And that was a little, uh, I don't know if it was anxiety or just like, whoa, you know, like I had to take a step back and like take it all in for a second. Um it is an adjustment. It's, it's very weird. Like there's all this noise that we get used to like tolerating in society, whether that's like just traffic or um, just moving around other people or like, I don't know, that's, that's what I've come to describe it as. It's just noise stuff. Your brain has to filter out constantly. Um, all these stimuli and, and things coming in that your brain just learns how to filter out. And then once you're down the South pole, like brain doesn't have to do that anymore it's like doesn't have to filter anything because there's hardly anything stimulating you and you get used to that and then you come back to society and it's like whoa and then like you have to build your like your brain has to build its filters all over again um to filter everything out because it's it's kind of deafening so that's the best way i can describe it no yeah did your dreams change dramatically after a while of being down there do you remember um yeah actually it's funny because i was i started dreaming couple of things actually so i started dreaming about being at the south pole which is weird i usually don't have dreams about where i am like i usually i'm like my dreams are bizarre like i just there's no basis in reality um but i would dream about being there at the south pole you know because it's kind of like groundhog day every day is the same you know um we try to break it up as best we can but a lot of it's just the same day after day after day <clears throat> um and then I would, there's two things, I, a recurring dream, and I, I've never had recurring dreams, but two things that I recurrently dreamt about were sunrises or sunsets, sunsets actually. Like I would just dream that I was somewhere like in Florida watching a sunset and like 
part of me would be like, Oh my God, this is so beautiful. And then the other part of me would be like, Oh my God, I, did I leave the South pole? Like, did I say goodbye to people? Like I'd have a little mini freak out in my dream about that. And the other thing is I would have dreams about, um, rain, like oh, wow. thunderstorms. I had probably six or seven dreams about rain. Um, and I didn't really realize I was going to miss that. Like I knew I was going to miss the sun, but I didn't really realize I was going to miss the rain until I started dreaming about it. Um, and I would just like dream that it was like pouring down like thunderstorm and I was like walking through it and it was like the best thing ever, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, those are the th three things that I think, um, were different about my dreams when I was down there. Did you guys exercise while down there? I'm sure you had to have some yeah. type of a specific, do you guys have like an exercise room? I, I, cause I, yeah. I yeah, we, um, so we have, uh, we have a weight room. Actually, I'll say this. So the, the cell pole station is, has one like main long section and then it has like four pods coming off of that. And each of those pods has a different function. And one of those pods is just dedicated to being a sports gym. And it's kind of like a smallish basketball court. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, but it's, it's great. Whoever designed the station is like, you know what, let's give these people something to do with all this time. Um, so it's got basketball hoops in there. We played volleyball in there like twice a week, uh, which is awesome. And, uh, above that on the second floor, kind of overlooking the uh, sports gym is a weight room. So you got all your treadmills, all your like free weights and everything in there. So that was awesome. I'm definitely somebody who would have had second thoughts if, uh, they didn't have a gym down there, second thoughts about going because working out just helps keep, keep me sane. And I was like, I don't know if I can be in a place that's that cold without the sun for that long, without having a way to work out, you know? So, um, it's really great. They have that, uh, everything I needed or wanted was in there. Um, and it's also just a good community, uh, space to have, um, you know, to get together and do sports. Uh, we also could rearrange it to become like a giant movie theater too. We'd oh, pull awesome. all these seats and seats and couches in there and pull down the giant projector screen and kind of turn the gym into a movie theater, which was awesome. Um, we did that probably once a month or so, uh, for like long weekends or whatever. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, recreation is, is definitely important. You know, it's not just fun for the sake of fun. It's fun for the sake of sanity, you know? So, Yeah. Is everybody down, I'm sure it's, this is not the case, but is everybody down there American or scientists from all over the globe? Yeah. So everybody who's on the support staff, like me, who's, you know, medical or who's a plumber or electrician or something like that, uh, they're all American or have, you know, were uh, legally able to work for the U.S. government uh, in some capacity. So you wouldn't have to be a citizen. You could be a resident alien or something like that, green card or work visa. Um but everybody, everybody who was on the support staff this year was uh, American. There were three foreigners who were scientists. There was an Australian, uh, a Brit, and a German. Um, those are the three uh, international people on station. Uh, the rest of us were Americans. Yeah, that's got to be, especially for them, it's got to be kind of um, almost overwhelming to spend that much, that amount of time with people from a different country than you. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought about that, but yeah, you're probably right. I think, um, well, I think they've all spent a significant amount of time in other parts of the world. So I think it may not have been that much of a deal. I think it's, I think what was harder is just getting used to getting along with just those people for nine months, you know, like, I mean, regardless of the nationality, some people you'll like, some people you won't like, you know? Yeah. And in general, we all pretty much liked each other, uh, so it wasn't too much of a problem, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it, 
more than nationality, it's just personality, you know, is the for hardest sure. thing to get used to. Well, yeah, for sure. I'm sure there were, there were some people like upside of you, like not just about you, but other people who didn't really yeah. bode well personality wise. That happens with everything, teams, everything, you know? Yeah, but, exactly. You get 40 people together, like, you know, people yeah. are going to have conflicts and drama and stuff. So, but you got to move by, move past that. If you're going to spend a year together. Right. Um, right. How did you guys get your food? Did your greenhouse produce vegetables and things like that? But what about protein sources? Things like, did you guys bring them packaged like space people, space people, yeah. space scientists, astronauts, yeah. or did you guys have a plane fly in every once in a while with food? how did you guys get your food? Yeah. So everything, uh, that comes in, comes in either by plane, like one of those, like a cargo plane during the summer or, we also have a, uh, a track that runs from McMurdo to the South Pole, like an overland um, track where they basically have these giant tractor vehicles and they drag the cargo behind them. Um, that's how we get our fuel too for the power plant. Um, so basically everything that's not grown in the greenhouse is has to be able to be frozen. So it gets to us frozen. Um, Okay, that's not completely true. We get, during the start of the season, we do get eggs and apples and fresh vegetables and stuff. But once the planes stop during winter, like our supply of those is cut off. So by April, everything we eat either comes out of the greenhouse or is being thawed out from uh, some shipment we received earlier. So that's all, that's all our options. Now, our chefs were amazing. Like they are top notch. They did the best they could with what they had. But yeah, you definitely start to miss things like eggs and fruits and um you know apples and oranges and bananas and uh fresh tomatoes um we did grow some grape tomatoes i think in the greenhouse but yeah you just you start to miss them some things that just can't be frozen um and can't be grown in the greenhouse because it's just too small for something like apple like an apple tree or yeah you know something like that so um yeah but they did an amazing job really good cooks did you guys only have specifically because like you said, people, different people were on different sleep schedules. Did you guys have specific times for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Was it come and go? How did you guys do that? Yeah. So we, yeah, it was pretty simple. Uh, breakfast was from six to seven thirty in the morning. Uh, lunch was from 1130 to 1230 and then dinner was five to six thirty. So kind of a small window. Everybody's on the same one. There's no like uh, third shift meal or anything like that. Um, they do do that at Murdo because there are a lot of late night shifts people. Um, but at South Pole, uh, those are the times you show up and you get it. It's just all buffet style, um, you know, like cafeteria or whatever. Uh, and they had, I think, a six week meal rotation that they went through twice and then they switched to something new. Um, but very creative, very good chefs. Um, and they also took care of us very well on the, on the days they weren't working. So every Sunday, the, the kitchen staff have off. Um, they don't, they only work six days a week. Um, only six days a week. Uh, that's actually our, our, the standard work week at the South pole is six days. Um, so everybody's on six days for me, it doesn't make as much a difference. I'm on seven days a week, you know, uh, for what it's worth for medical support. Um, but, uh, on the days they had off, they always made sure to cook up leftovers or um, package up leftovers and, and make a bunch of sandwiches and make like really great food that they could put in the leftover fridge and anybody can go get anything from there anytime. Um, and that also takes care of some of the overnight people as well. So they, uh, yeah, they really took care of us. 
Besides that, Murdo, did you ever get to go underneath the ice and see um, different animals? Or I saw this on your TikTok page, but um, yeah. different animals or or just um, ocean life? Or did you only uh-huh. get to see that at Murdo? Uh, only at McMurdo. So there's no um, there's no animal life at the South Pole. It's just too far inland. There's nothing. There's nothing alive there. There's nothing to eat. There's no ecosystem. Um, there might be like bacteria trapped in the ice or something crazy like that, but like, there's just nothing, there's nothing for the food chain to build on, you know? So, um, I've heard from some people that like occasionally once every couple of years, a bird, like a lost, one of the birds down there is called a skua. Uh, a skua will get lost and get blown off course and will like land at the South pole or something dead basically. Um, but that's all I've ever heard. Um, definitely no penguins coming through McMurdo though. You see plenty. I saw tons of penguins, uh, some whales, tons of seals. Um, so near the coast, there's tons of life, but a South pole, there is none. There's nothing there except for us and what's growing in the greenhouse. So, so what, I think this is like an important question to ask for everybody listening. What are the scientists working on there? What is the re everyone knows that there's research being done at the South pole, but I don't think anybody really knows unless they follow your page or there's some other people right. who are working at the South Pole that are pretty TikTok famous, but um, I don't know if they were. Why are we that. there? Yeah, why are you guys there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so everybody's like, "Why are you guys even there? Like, why are we down there polluting an environment you know that we don't need to be?" And that's fair, but um, we the biggest science experiments there. I think there's something like twenty or thirty total, but the biggest ones are for astronomy. So, if you think about it, the sun is down for six months out of the year. Uh, and so based on that in the atmosphere, just being very clear, like basically year round, 365 days a year, it's pretty clear, um, means that it's great for astronomy. Um, and it has, because we're at the, if you think about it, we're at the South pole and we don't, you know, we just spin around like that. You know, we're basically always looking at the same sky, looking downward. It, it rotates around but it doesn't actually change. So you get to, if you want to study one thing for a long period of time, you can point the telescope at it and just track it 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, for a while. And so it's a unique place in the earth. Um, I guess you could do it at the North pole, but that's melting. So uh, to be able to study um, astronomical objects uh, for long periods of time and get a lot of like really good images and, and data from that. So there's a couple different telescopes. What they're working on now is um, they're analyzing some of the background radiation in the universe to see kind of like study how the big bang um, left that radiation behind and so how we, where we came from and everything uh, and how the universe first formed and all that cool nerdy stuff. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that on my YouTube channel in the coming months or coming month or two, probably as I post interviews from people and they're talking about it. I'm going to try to do some animations to make it a little bit easier to understand, but um, there's that. And then there's some, um, there's climate uh, science going on there too. So um, there's a uh, research station down there that just looks at the atmosphere, measures ozone levels, uh, monitors the weather um, and takes readings for like CO2 levels, methane levels, like all the different gases in the atmosphere that we're releasing or that na- are naturally occurring. Um, we're keeping track of it and seeing how levels fluctuate over the year. Uh, 
so yeah, that, that all plays into like climate science and people's you know, climate change models and everything like that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's unique in that sense too, because it's, it's so far away from any source of pollution that it's basically the purest air in the world. Um, and so, because there's so like the nearest city is like thousands of miles away. Like it's, we're basically not being polluted by anything. Um, and it's a continent, the Antarctic continent's the size of like Australia. Actually, I think it's bigger than Australia. It's bigger than the U S. Um, so if you imagine like a site that big of a place with no pollution, like you just get the purest air and it just helps, um, give some data. It kind of gives you like the background pollution level of the whole earth because there's no pollution um, anywhere nearby. It kind of gives you like the worldwide average or um, yeah, background or whatever. Um, so there's some other seismic stuff that like detects uh, like earthquake waves in the crust of the earth too. There's no earthquakes around there, but if an earthquake happens somewhere else in the world, we can detect it down there and it kind of helps pinpoint where it came from. Uh, yeah. So there's a variety of different experiments there. Um, I think it's funny when I started talking about this on my TikTok, people would, um, people would ask like, why are you guys down there? What do you, what science are you doing in that place that you couldn't do in a freezer or something like that? And interestingly, we're not doing any experiments about the cold itself. It just happens to be really cold there. Uh, so yeah, so that's a, that's a bit of a summary there, what we're doing. No, I was going to guess that you were doing something about astronomy when you, when you were talking about uh, the telescope. I'm guessing you yeah. got to look through the telescope. So what is the coolest thing that you got to see while being down there? So I wish it worked like that, but unfortunately there are, there are radio telescopes or microwave telescopes where you can't really look through it like with your eyeball. It's all like computerized and digitized yeah, okay. and you're looking at microwaves. Um, let's see. Actually, I'm trying to think. They eh, no, I never did get to look through it. So they have smaller spotter telescopes that they use to like calibrate the bigger ones, but I never even got to look through those. Um, the I didn't get to see it, but the coolest thing I think that I was there for. Um, I don't know. Some of your listeners might remember if you're particularly nerdy, but a few years ago there's this big news story about how we saw the first image of a black hole, and it was kind of oh, like just like yes. an or- kind of an orange ring. Okay, you remember that. Um, so there was, uh, and it was this huge collaboration, like science experiment from telescopes all over the world. I think there was seven or nine telescopes. Anyway, the South pole telescope was one of them and they're continuing that project this year and looking at the black hole at the center of our own galaxy, trying to see if we can get a similar picture. Um, and so I was there for that. And when they're gathering all that data, um, now it's not where I could see it, but I wish. But um, hopefully next year or two, we'll get to see what that picture looks like. So that's kind of exciting um, to be there. Kind of like, well, history was made. I actually helped pack up a lot of the hard drives with the data from that. Um, so I was like, this is cool. I'm packing up hard drives with data on it that I'm going to see like a news story about in like two years. So it's, that was kind of neat. I don't know. I'm a big nerd though. So Yeah, I am too, dude. And it's cool that I'm sure like like being, being a PA, um, you get to like, you get to be around some of the smartest people from the United States, you know, and just to like yeah, pick man. their brains and, and because you're there for, for a year, like you get to sit down with them and have just these long conversations, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you, you learn so much just being associated with these people and everything like that. Um, sure. I want to talk about the Southern lights, I guess is what you would call them. Sure. 
yeah. and just the experience that you had with it. Like, did it become, did you become accustomed to it or was it always fascinating just to like go out there and, and, and feel it almost and see it? Like, you know, how did you feel yeah. every day with it, seeing it? It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. Cause the sun starts going down and all of a sudden you start seeing, you know, you still have the glow of the horizon of the sun on the horizon over here. And then you just see like these green lights dancing in the sky over here. Um, and it's just, it's spellbinding. Like it's just so cool to see. And some of them move really fast. Um, you'll, you'll see like a main band and then you'll see like little ripples like happening in that band that are just like, sometimes they're moving like, just like shooting across the sky really fast. Um, it was really, really cool. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like it was just one of those fascinating things that you can't believe exists, you know, like, like it sounds like something that would be made up and put in like a sci-fi film or something like that, but it actually really exists. And it's just so neat to see, but you're right. After a while of seeing that every time you go outside, you, you get a little accustomed to it. Like, and so you don't, you know, you don't rush outside every time one appears. Um, we had a little webcam actually, where we could look at the sky over the station um, at any time, you know, anybody from, with a computer could log in or phone and uh, see what it looked like right then. And so, you know, I check on it sometimes. I'm like, ah, eh, there's a little bit of an aurora, but it's not that great. Like you, like you just take it for granted to where you're not going outside unless it's absolutely spectacular, like super bright and all the colors and everything like that. So you do take it for granted a little bit. Um, but even those times where I saw it and I didn't go out was way better than anything I'd ever seen before. And I'd seen them before in like Iceland and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, yeah, you, you take it, take it for granted for a little bit, a little bit. Um, but every time it's awe inspiring, like you see it and you just like, can't believe this exists, especially if it was a really still day. Um, people have asked me if I could hear them. I never was able to hear them. Um, some people say, say they describe like a hissing noise or, uh, almost like a bell or some kind of noise. I never heard that. Um, but, uh, if it's a, just a really still night and you just, there's no noise whatsoever. And you just see these lights dancing in the sky sometimes they're so bright where you don't even need a headlamp to, if you're walking out to a building, you can just like turn your light off and the whole, um, the whole snowy ground, like just glows green and you can see exactly where you're going. It's, it's pretty amazing. So what exactly are they? I don't think I know specifically what the, the lows, Northern Southern lights are. Yeah. I, I did a little bit on my TikTok trying to explain it's complicated, but basically the, um, the, there's solar radiation that comes at us. That's not sunlight. It's like particles that the sun is like just throwing at us. Um, little tiny subatomic particles that just come at us really fast, like hundreds of miles per hour, I think. Wait, hundreds of thousand? Yeah, I can't remember. Maybe thousands of miles per hour, something like that. Anyways, um, they hit the atmosphere and they, they hit stuff. And whenever two like particles hit each other, usually like light and energy is the, the result. And um, that's basically what happens. They crash into, into atoms in our atmosphere and they let off light. And um, they only happen in the north and south because our magnetic field around the earth kind of like bends them towards that area. And then it kind of funnels them in towards the poles. And um, that's where they all crash into our, into our the atoms in our atmosphere. And then they just light up. And then they have these cool like wavy uh, patterns that kind of like move and bend because that's kind of like the magnetic field that they're following. It's kind of like bending and warping as it's pushing it around. So that's kind of like the, the quick and dirty summary. Um, it's kind of complicated. I know it's, but it's, 
basically particles from the sun just crashing into our atmosphere. Yeah. Can you guys see constellations from the yeah. South Pole? What is some yeah. of the more prolific ones? That's a good question, actually. I never learned the southern constellations. Um, so they're different than what you see here in the northern hemisphere. So from Florida, I could only see like maybe a fraction of the of the constellations I can I could see from down there. Um, the, probably the biggest one is the Southern Cross. Um, so there's the Southern Cross that kind of points the way south uh, or towards the. So if you imagine right above the south, the South Pole had a line going straight up. It would point at the like the celestial south pole the south pole for our sky basically um there's no there's no star or constellation there it's just kind of like this empty space unlike in the north we have the north star almost exactly on the north pole of the sky um there's nothing like that in the south but you have the southern cross that kind of points the way there uh that's the only one i remember and i remember finding in the sky when i looked um but i never learned the southern constellations unfortunately I was too busy looking at the auroras probably. You know, to go off of that too, though, is just like, it's got to be so fascinating and such a overwhelming experience to have stillness and, and, and almost pure quietness when, when you're not talking to someone or some of the machines are running. What is it yeah. like? What does your headspace become? Is it, do you almost, for, are you almost forced to meditate almost? Like, is it just like, does your become quiet in your head? What is the headspace like when it's just so still, like somewhere in the South Pole? Yeah. Um, I think in general, you have to get used to that because you're, uh, I liked it. I think for some people, they might not like that, that stillness and being kind of like alone with your thoughts kind of feeling um, where you have to, uh, be okay being alone because you have a lot of that at the South Pole. If you're a super social person, maybe it's not the place for you, you know. Yeah. Um, because you're gonna probably be on your own for a bit of a bit of the time, and you're also going to be taking long walks out to outbuildings. Um, personally, I loved it. I thought it was very meditative because uh, you're making maybe like a half mile, you know, trudge in the snow with all your gear on. Um, it's not easy but you kind of get in this pattern of like just one foot after the other. Um, and also it's not easy because you're at altitude, you're at 10,000 feet and you adjust to that altitude a little bit, but I never fully adjusted. Like it was, there's, you know, it was always a bit hard for me. So you're, you're struggling a little bit, not struggling, but you're exerting yourself a little bit, um, you know, outside in the snow, but you know, when it was totally quiet and all you can hear is your own footsteps and you look up and you just like see the Aurora or, or something. And it's just, I don't know, you just get the feeling that you're super alone. And I loved that feeling, but I think for some people it's unnerving. Mm -hmm. Uh, they probably gives them anxiety, but, uh, yeah, it is, it, it is a bit meditative, honestly. Like you just, it's almost like you put your head down you start walking and then all of a sudden you, you look up and you're there at the building you're look you're going to, you know, and it's almost like you forgot the time, the intervening time, you know, because you're just in like this very, almost like a trance kind of state, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's obviously different up in the Northern hemisphere and the poles and everything like that, but it's, it's fascinating to think that that's almost like, um, how humans in colder parts of the world existed up until, you know, modern yeah. civilization. Like I was talking to, a to a historian, not too long ago on this podcast. He's a, he's a friend of mine now, but we, um, we were talking about how ancient humans got to 
the natives basically got to the United States and, and Northern America, and they basically walked. They think that Russia, or there's a couple, there's a couple of theories, but one one of the major ones is that Russia and um, United States had an ice bridge, right? Mm-hmm. And Canada, I guess, and they walked. And, and if you really think about that, it's exactly that. It was just them, and their family members walking, and all they could hear is their footsteps, and all they could see was the stars. And it's fascinating yeah. because it's like we don't really know what that is like being a modern human, especially a modern American who lives in a city where you just see millions upon millions of people. And it's got to be almost yeah. freeing in a sense. It's got to almost like yeah. open up your soul to, to the beyond and make you, I don't know if you're like religious or spiritual, but it's got to make you think like that you're a small, small part in a large picture. Right. I think you gotta, you gotta get that feeling whether you're spiritual or religious or not. Like you just get the sense that you are tiny and this place you're on is huge because I mean, I got that sense just flying into the South Pole, um, you know, flying in from McMurdo, you, you get over the mountains and then it's just three hours, like two and a half, three hours of just flying over flat, nothing. Like there's nothing. There's just like this icy plateau uh, and it just extends in all directions for hundreds of miles, thousands of miles in some cases. And uh, there's just nothing there. There's nothing there. And then you finally, you see this tiny speck on the horizon and, you know, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden it's the South Pole station, like in the middle of nowhere. Like there's nothing, if you didn't know it was the South Pole, like there's no, there's no landmarks there to tell you it's the South Pole. You know, it's just something we've found and we've defined there. Um, but yeah, you just get the sense of like, and I had it again when I was leaving because, um, you know, you just don't get that aerial view ever, uh, except when you're coming in and going out. But uh, it was just, yeah, you just feel so small feel so small in relation to the universe, you know, and I think that's a good thing. I think people should be reminded of that. We're just, we're just little beings here on this planet. You know, do you think that I'm sure you did, but do you think that you benefited from being there in some aspects, maybe mentally, physically, um, or, or informationally, do you think you benefited from something being there that most people will never get to experience? Uh, not physically. I think physically it's hard on your body. Um, being at altitude, being without the sun, I don't think physically there's any benefit to doing it. Um, maybe, maybe socially, um, you know, you once being in a, in a box with, um, 38 other people, you learn how to manage social situations a little bit better. You learn people a little bit better. I wouldn't say that's, I wouldn't go down there just for that. Um, I think the experience of doing it definitely made it worthwhile for me. The, um, the auroras, you know, the, the night sky constantly, the six months of night, um, to me as a nerd and as astronomy nerd on top of that was just fascinating. Like I, I couldn't, there's not, you can't have that experience anywhere else in the world, even at McMurdo station, uh, 800 miles away. It's not the same. Um, there's only one place on earth really where you can have that experience. And, um, yeah, I think that that was it for me. I, I, socially, emotionally, I don't. I mean, or sorry, emotionally, like uh, I think it's tough as well. Like you're without the sun for that long. You know, you miss home. You miss, you know, thunderstorms and sunshine and sunsets. Uh, so I don't. I don't know if I grew at all in that respect. Um, I I think I did learn how to take my time and relax a little bit more instead of. Uh, you know, you have to, you can't be like this manic person that needs to do something all the time because you'll run out of things to do there. And you just have to tell yourself it's okay 
to not do anything right now, you know? So that's maybe one thing I learned while I was there because, um, there's just, you know, you do everything you're supposed to do and you might run out of things to do and that's it. So if you're a super, uh, go-getter person that needs something to do all the time, then, um, maybe it's not the place for you. You know, you need to learn how to chill out. So one thing I learned, I guess, um, I wouldn't go there to learn that lesson because if you don't learn it, you're going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, to go off of that, you, you just said one of them, but what are the top things you think you learned while being there? Mm. Um, <sighs> top things I learned while being there. I mean, besides all the cool science stuff that I didn't know before, um, and you know, all the, the technical nerdy stuff like that to do with science and astronomy and stuff. Um, like as far as personal revelations, uh, you know, I, th- I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to put it into words. Uh, I think it changes your perspective on how to deal with people when you have to live with them. Like you don't have a choice, you know, um, you're living with them for nine months, whether you like it or not, whether they like you or not. Um, and I think we often in society just have the option to not be around somebody. Um, and so that's our, that's kind of our last resort is like, well, if we can't resolve this. We're just not going to see each other. We're just not going to be around each other. Uh, and there you don't really have that option. Like, yeah, you can just avoid each other uh, all year, but it's just going to make, it's just going to be a tension that grows and grows and grows. And so um, taking away that last resort, I think really teaches you um, what to do when you don't have that option, which is an option we choose so easily here in society, you know, to just avoid somebody. Um, but when you don't have it, it really stretches you to come up with a solution that's workable for both of you or you and a group of people or whatever it is if that makes any sense. No, it does. Yeah. It, we were talking about it earlier when you're forced to be with 40 people, you know, it's yeah. got to, it, it changes the way you interact because you can't it changes just, your dynamic hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you can't just be like, I mean, it's almost like if you play a sport, right. And you're forced to be with teammates, you know, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to say football because even football, there's 150 guys. You can avoid people, you know, especially you're, you're yeah. going to be, <laughs> sure. it's, it's almost like if you're on a basketball team or you're on like a, a team with even, um, even less players than that, you know, you're yeah. forced to coagulate with these people. You're forced to interact. You're forced to have these, um, these moments with these people and it, and it changes your outlook on how you, and it's even crazier for your circumstances because you lived in such a far out place where it's like, you couldn't, right. you couldn't even just leave. Like if you leave, it means hypothermia right. and eventually <laughs> like walked out. Yeah. Um, exactly. Even if you wanted to, but just to, just to make you interact with these people, did you ever have any experiences with people? Where you're like, I don't know if I'm gonna like this guy. And then you ended up really liking them after interacting with them for a while. Yeah, actually there was one guy in particular. So we had to do quarantine before we got down there. Um, and so that meant, you know, 10 days in a hotel in San Francisco and getting COVID tested and then getting to New Zealand and just staying in a hotel room, you know, for two weeks straight getting tested. And then once you get rid and once you, you know, get through all that, you finally get to go down to Antarctica because they're trying to keep COVID off of Antarctica. Um, yeah, there was one guy that we we'd do all these Zoom calls and we did training over Zoom calls and sometimes we'd play some uh, online games over Zoom and stuff like that. Um, but there was one guy in particular that I just like, 
I don't think I'm going to like this guy. Like I just, he was just kind of a clown. Like he just, he was, he, he seemed a little bit dense. Like he just was not, he seemed to want to waste people's time. Like he would ask these questions on zoom, I think just to ask them or whatever. And it's funny. Cause like, as soon as I got down to South pole and actually hung out with them for a little bit, first week or two, I felt the same. And then like, he just grew on me. Like, I love this guy. Like uh, nowadays, like I would hang out with this guy anytime. Like once you, once I understood where he's coming from and, and like his personality and has it just a genuinely nice person and everything. Um, I, yeah, I was like, yeah, he's not, he didn't get on my nerves at all. He was awesome. And then, you know, the opposite also happened too. There's some people that I thought that are, you know, let's say a person that I thought I would really get along with, um, from the start and ended up not. And so it can go both ways. You just, um, you know, obviously you, uh, you don't really, you, so, you know, how people say first impressions are the most important ones. Um, there because you don't have an opportunity to get away from people. Um, you get lots of impressions of them. So if they actually grow on you, like the first impression doesn't matter as much, I guess, Mm -hmm. because you don't have the option to avoid them because your first impression was bad, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it can go both ways. Your first impression doesn't matter as much. Uh, you can end up liking somebody that you didn't think you would at first. And then the opposite can be true as well. So while being there, what was the coolest, most strange, or, or even just most memorable experience you had? Oh man, there's so many. Um, I think probably for me, the most memorable experience was seeing the, the first Aurora of the season. Um, the sun had just gone down. This was like March, maybe March 30th or something like that. Um, and I don't know, for some reason, like, so my dream was to get to the Antarctica someday. I never even dreamed I would get to the South pole. And that just opened right up for me. And I was on cloud nine about it, but like part of me didn't ever really believe it was going to happen or felt like something was going to go wrong to ruin it. Like I didn't ever want to get my hopes up about it. Um, and for some reason I had kind of guarded myself against getting my hopes up so much that it didn't really, I didn't really sink in that I was there and that I was going to be there for the next eight months where I've been dreamed up, where I've dreamed up being until I saw that first Aurora as the sun was going down. And it just kind of like hit me all at once. It's like, you're here, you're stuck, you're stuck here, whether you like it or not. But I was, you know, it just finally dawned on me that like, this is your life for the next nine months. And it's what you've wanted since, you know, you're a little kid. Um, and so seeing the Aurora, that sinking in, um, yeah, it just, it was just a powerful experience. I think, um, there's lots of little physical phenomena that happened while I was there too. Like the, like the mirage, the Fata Morgana, which you can see on my TikTok, which was just like really cool. Um, just the, the, you know, the two weeks of like the sun, the sunrise, the sun getting stronger and stronger or sunset, where it's just like this orange purple glow on everything. It was just some of those like beautiful scenery I've ever seen, even though it's just, everything's flat and white. It's just, the lighting is just mind blowing. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd actually go with the Aurora, the first Aurora thing though. That was probably my number one, most like powerful experience while I was down there. No. Yeah. I can't, I can't even imagine. Well, not only are you, 
you're one of the few people who gets the opportunity to visit all seven continents, right? Um, yeah. Most people can just go to six and, and that's yeah. even stretching it. So um, yeah, I can't imagine, I will never be able to imagine unless I get to experience what it was like for you to be there, be like, all right, I'm going to be yeah. alone with these 40 people or these 38 people and just experiencing right. that first Aurora. Was that the first time you've seen um, something like the Northern or Southern Lights? Uh, I'd, I'd seen it before in Iceland, a pretty good one in Iceland a few years ago, but just like, uh, like three or four times in that one trip, I got really lucky that trip too. But, um, these were something else. Like these were, these were, these looked a little different and just as the winter went on, became stronger and stronger. Um, but yeah, it, even that it was like, I had never seen it before, honestly, like the way, the way it, it struck me, um, yeah. I, speaking of the continents, I still have to make it to Africa. So I haven't even made it uh, to Africa yet, but I think that's the last one I got to check off my list if we're counting continents, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So besides Antarctica, where else, you said Iceland, I, I know you've been in New Zealand. I've seen things about it. Where have you been right. in Asia? Where have you been in, I think in yeah. South America? Yeah. Yeah. I did a whole tour of South America. Um, I started in Colombia and just worked my way south to Bolivia and separate trip. I did Chile. Um, I've done Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Iceland, Italy. I've really skipped a lot of, uh, Europe because it's just expensive. And I am more into like natural landscapes and phys and like cool things about the earth. Not so much like man-made stuff. I mean, I'll come around and do it eventually, but, um, in Australia a while back, uh, Bali, Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, kind of all over. I've tried to document as much as I can on my YouTube. Yeah. Um, some really, I, and I'm always attracted to the physical phenomena of stuff like in Vietnam, um, me and some buddies did like a motorcycle trip from like the very South to the very North, which was a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. Um, but one of the highlight of the trip for me was taking a tour of the largest cave in the world, which is there in, in, um, in Vietnam. Um, and it's like an expedition you take like five days to get through it all and whatever. Um, and it's really, really cool. Some of the coolest sites I've ever seen. Um, probably just second to, uh, the South pole. Um, but yeah, that's all on my YouTube as well. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. You, you know, having the ability to go to the South pole and then also being a person who loves to travel and seeing all these things, I'm glad you're documenting it because you know that's a lot of people's dreams you're living yeah, some, like yeah. a lot of people's dreams you know and 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 a lot of those scientists i'm sure they're just like i'm gonna go to the south pole and then i'm gonna go home and continue to do science and i'm not gonna travel ever yeah but there's also right. a lot of people who are like they're like they they followed you and they're like oh this i thought this guy was just at the south pole and now you're i'm sure you're gonna continue to travel and yeah. they're gonna continue that's to follow you because yeah yeah um do you think, but yeah, they're going to continue to follow you and they're going to continue to grow with you. But do you think that you're going to ever take a specific medical job like you did for the South Pole anywhere else in the world? Or do you think that's, it's basically cut with Antarctica? Maybe. Um, so I actually haven't looked into where I'm going to work next as far as, <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to wait for this plane to go by. I don't know, maybe I, maybe I just forgot how much air traffic there is around here. Um, yeah, I haven't looked at my next, uh, medical job yet. I would love to have a travel medical job. You know, there's, um, there's definitely companies that do it where they have to be like the medical detail on some, 
you know, location shoot for a movie or something like that. And I would love to do something like that. Uh, I haven't, uh, applied for anything like that. We'll see. I'm still trying to get this, like all this backlog of media content I have out of the way first. And then I've got my brothers getting married in January. So I've got a few things to worry about before I start looking for my next medical work, but I would love to do something like that. Um, where I'm like just going off somewhere in the world to do something medical. Uh, I mean, I'll also do it just on my own to travel too, but getting to do it, do it as a job would be even cooler. Um, the government does do contracts like similar to what I did in Antarctica um, all over. They do it like in Greenland and American Samoa and some other kind of more exotic places. Uh, so yeah, I would, I would totally do it. I think I had a great experience. I don't think I asked you this. How did you get into, into the medical side of things or the medicine side of things? Yeah. So I, uh, always knew I was interested in it a little bit since I was like, uh, 19 or 20. I, um, I got a degree in history early on. And then, uh, one of my friends said he was going to EMT school and I was like, that sounds interesting. I'll do that with you. And, um, I went to EMT school, started learning some medical stuff and I was hooked. I loved it. Um, and then, you know, kind of, kind of wandered on from there. Like I, I went to firefighter school and a little bit of paramedic training as well. Um, and long, and at that point I knew I wanted to do something, something science related. I, I thought I should have known at that point I should have stuck with medicine, but I, I was setting my sights higher and higher. And I was like, Oh, maybe I want to do science. Maybe I want to do research. And, uh, I tried to go into research and I hated it. Uh, so long story short, um, by the time I was about 20, what was I? 26, I think, uh, applied for PA school and got in. Um, but yeah, I was, I've always loved analyzing problems and figuring them out and, um, you know, blood and guts never bothered me and I, I loved emergency stuff. So I was like, Oh, it seems like the ticket. I'll just do emergency room, um, medicine. And, uh, that's, I graduated as a PA in 2015 and that's what I've done, um, ever since. And I've loved it. Wouldn't do anything else. Um, well, I say that wouldn't do anything else, but I also have kind of told myself, I probably won't do this for more than 10 or 15 years. Um, then I'm going to find something else. Um, because, uh, I think you do emergency medicine for a while and you, you can kind of tend to burn out. Um, that's a whole topic by itself, but yeah, I basically start off as an EMT. Um, it's and anybody who thinks they might want to do medicine, I recommend doing that because it's usually, I don't know, two, three, maybe four months, depending on the program you go to. Um, it gives you a really good taste of emergency medicine at least. And, um, if you finish it and you hated it, then it's like, all right, well, at least you didn't waste, you know, two years in nursing school or something like that. Um, thinking, you know, uh, you found out really quickly that you hated it. I thought it was a really good intro course and um, helped you know what you're made of that way. So, yeah, um, my it's going to be a, a sequence of people. My girlfriend's mom's husband was an EMT okay. before, and uh -huh. now they um, now he and my girlfriend's mom they they are basically well, she's a nurse practitioner, but they um, mm -hmm. they do IVs basically. They they mm -hmm. they work for a clinic, a wellness clinic that does IVs is basically the main mm -hmm. thing they do. And just cool. hearing some of the stories he talks about being an EMT and then also talking to a buddy of mine who's in EMT school now and and uh, things he's going to get to do. It, it's EMT because before I got into um, 
law, uh, I was really yeah. fascinated with forensic anthropology and forensic pathology. And so in okay. high school, I was in this big forensics program. I got to go to the morgue. I got to see a bunch of dead bodies and things like that. And I was right. like, no, I don't really want to stare at dead bodies and examine them my, for my <laughs> life. And I don't really want to do that. But, you know, I've always heard EMT is like another side of it because it's blood and gore, but it's living people. And a lot of the time, yeah, right. trying to help living people not die you right. know and, right, and that's right. got it, it takes a toll on you because sometimes you can't they don't survive or, right. or something things you you didn't living people shouldn't look like that a lot of the time so i'm sure yeah. when you say like if you're going to get into medicine it's what you want to do it's because it's 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 a damn hard job to do for not yeah. a large large amount of money yeah 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 no it's true like and it, you gotta what you said about, you know, you're dealing with living people, but you, you don't get to save every one of them. You don't get to save a lot of them, you know? So you got to be very okay uh, sleeping at night and knowing um, that you did what you could and that's it. Um, some people I think have a really hard time with that. You know, they want to always second guess themselves and be like, well, if I would have done this differently or if I would have seen this earlier. And it's like, as long as you knew you did the best thing you could with the information you had at the time, like that's the best you can do, you know? So, um, it definitely takes a little bit of detachment. You definitely see people a little bit differently after getting into emergency medicine, um, kind of medicine in general, but especially emergency medicine or surgery. You kind of, um, you see people just differently. You see us all more of the same. I think you just see, uh, you just know we're just like walking meat sacks or whatever, you know, and you're just like not, there's not too much difference between us um, once, you know, under the skin. So um, I think it's good in that respect. It's, you know, I, I, um, what am I trying to say? I, you just, you just see everybody more as equals, I guess, mm -hmm. because, you know, no matter who you are, when you're having an emergency, you're just a human, you know, and, uh, everybody, everybody has that human side when, um, things go bad, I guess, you know, whether you're a billionaire or a homeless person, um, like if you're, having something go wrong, you're just a person. You're just, you're, you're hoping medicine can save you, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you know who Dr. Peter, Peter Adia or Ashia is, but I was mm -hmm. listening to a podcast between him, him and Joe Rogan recently. And he was a, he was a medical doctor, but he, who, who, um, practice cancer surgeries um but now mm. he works on longevity and you should actually look into him he's, he's fascinating he works on longevity and trying okay. to get people to live longer it's what he studies now but he was talking about part of the reason he got out of being a cancer surgeon was was having to tell 28 year olds or something that they have pancreatic stage four pancreatic cancer and they're gonna die and you know having those yeah. conversations i can't even imagine because that's like yeah not, not did you get shot and having to watch someone die for emts but it's like yeah. having a person who was healthy two, two years ago, you know, who just right, right. has stage four brain cancer or pancreatic cancer. And you yeah. Can't really help it's them. like, yeah, there's nothing you can do. And it's like, yeah, that would be really tough. That'd be really tough. Um, I'm good at short-term crises, not long-term crises, long-term that would wear on me really fast if I had to do that. Um, yeah, that's tough. Did you have to deal with any like chronic illness while you were there? No, actually everybody. So especially since COVID, but just in general, everybody goes through this really rigorous, um, uh, physical qualification screening before they get down there where, uh, you have to have a physical, you have to have like ultrasound of your gallbladder and your kidneys to make sure you don't have any stones that are waiting to cause a problem. Um, you can't, 
have anything too serious going on? Um, anything that's going to make you more at risk of being a bad COVID case is probably going to dis- disqualify you. Uh, like if you're, you know, immunocompromised or something like that, like you have a bad immune system, then you probably won't be able to get, get down there, at least to the South pole, maybe to McMurdo. Uh, so everybody's at pretty good health. Now you can go down there with high blood pressure. You can go down there with high blood sugar, like stuff like that. That's not a big deal. Um, so we would get people that would run out of their blood pressure medications and we'd have to restock them from the pharmacy. And we had a really great pharmacy there, um, that the doctor and I ran, um, which we could help people like that. Because if you, if, if you think about it, people have got to bring down like almost a year's worth of medication. And some people, it actually was a year's worth of medication. And sometimes they just can't get that much from their doctor back home to bring with them. Other times um, they can't get that much through customs in New Zealand um, because we still have to go through New Zealand to get to the South Pole. So um, people would just run out of their um, daily, everyday medication, whether it's for a heart condition or high blood pressure or blood sugar or something like that. And we could definitely help them out with that. Nobody had a, that I was aware, I had a crippling um, like chronic disease or something like that that really affected them. Um, they would probably be screened out for that if they were a high risk. Um, it depends though. It really depends on what the condition is. But as far as I know, we didn't have anybody uh, like that. So yeah, no. Um, now that being said, I don't look go and look through everybody's medical records before they get there or when I get there. Um, we do have everybody's medical history available to like the doctor and I, if we have somebody come in to the clinic that has a medical problem, um, we, then we can access their chart, you know, but we still follow like the HIPAA privacy laws and everything on the station. Same as we do in the States. We don't just go rooting through people's medical charts for no reason. Um, we keep everybody's, everybody's privacy as uh, private as we can. Um, but yeah, there could have been somebody with a condition there that I didn't know about and wouldn't know about unless it became a problem. How did you guys treat um, frostbite when, when, you, when you had a case of frostbite? So frostbite is, uh, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, it depends on how bad it is. So we only had one case of maybe like bad frostbite where, you know, somebody, somebody's like tissue died and like, uh, you know, I had to keep it clean and, and, um, patch it up later. Um, but mostly it's just getting it warm, uh, keeping it protected and then trying to keep the area from getting infected if the skin's broken. Um, but a lot of it's just making sure it stays clean and then just seeing how it turns out. Like how, like how much damage is done there? Like how much tissue is, is dying? Um, there's not a whole lot you can do, um, to reverse the tissue. If the tissue is dead, cause it got really badly frostbitten. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, just make sure it doesn't get any worse. Yeah. Well, man, I think that's a good way to end it. Thank you for this conversation. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah. I ended, sure. Um, and we've just been going for about, well, we've been on the call for about an hour and 25 minutes, but we've probably been talking okay. for about an hour and 20. And, um, sure. you know, I don't want to hold you all day, but, it, it, you know, I'm, okay. I'm really thankful for the conversation we had. Yeah, um, man. Happy to be here. I'm glad you're uh, glad you reached out. Um, I think it's really cool what you're doing. And uh, yeah. 
episode 82 with Joe Spins the Globe. What a fascinating guy to have on. You know, I was so interested in what he did down at the South Pole and just his travel experience in general. I have no doubt whether it be animation, media, or just his job being a PA that he's going to do such interesting things with his life. If you want to follow him, it's Joe Spins the Globe with TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. If you want to follow me, it's Colin and Man's Answers on those as well. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, stay demanding.